Let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. I invite you to turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 17 through 24. We're in the final portion of the letter. It's been, uh, I trust, a source of blessing as we've worked through this wonderful book, and we've seen the highs of God's goodness to us in Jesus Christ. Um, I've looked at the practical exhortations, also what it means to follow Jesus in day-to-day life. And we are now concluding this letter, and we'll, as you'll see, give special attention to prayer. That'll be at the heart of what we do this morning. So let's hear God's word together. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing, Uh, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that you are holy, incomparable. There is no one and nothing in heaven or on earth like you. You are majestic, glorious, and we know, Lord, that it is as we see more and more of your greatness and majesty that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. So, Father, grant us more and more to behold you as you are and to be transformed into your image. Father, as we confess that you are holy, we confess also that the scriptures you've given us, your very word, is also holy, pure, faithful, trustworthy. Father, we pray that you would be pleased to bless the proclamation of your word this morning, to bless the preaching of your word. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would cause it to bear much fruit in the lives of all those who are gathered here today. We pray that Jesus Christ, your son, would be more and more honored in all of our lives as a result of encountering you through the text of Scripture this morning. Grant that the proclamation of your word would be faithful, true, clear, effective. And we pray this not just this morning, but in every aspect of our church's life, we pray that there would be good fruit from the ministry of the word. We pray, Father, as parents read Scripture with their children day by day, we pray that you would bless that initiative. And that that time of prayer and scripture reading would be fruitful for the children, and that you would use that as a means to draw them to yourself. We pray, Lord, for Sunday school, that the word that is taught there today and every week would be fruitful in the lives of those children, that you would draw them to yourself. Father, we pray for the youth ministry of the church. The word that is faithfully taught there week after week would continue to be faithfully taught, effectively taught. We pray for your blessing on Zach that he would teach with authority, with power, with effectiveness for the good of our teenagers. And we pray also for all of the adult volunteers in that ministry, that as they bring your word to bear on, on those teenagers, Lord, that, that those encounters and those conversations would be fruitful. Lord, we pray that the formal study of Scripture, the men's study, the women's study, would bear much fruit in the lives of participants. Uh, whether we engage with your word formally or informally, in every context we pray 
that you would bless it and the Spirit would use it mightily to accomplish much spiritual good in all of our lives. Uh, Father, we ask this morning, teach us to pray. Speak to us now through your word. Amen. Uh, imagine for a moment that there was a man who spoke to his wife only in the morning and evening. Uh, he enters the kitchen in the morning, eats his food, thanks his wife for the breakfast, wishes her a good day, and is off to work. And then before he rolls over to fall asleep, he mumbles uh, good night to his wife and then collapses. What would you say about the relationship, the status of that marriage? Healthy, unhealthy? Uh, e even if it's painfully like the one you're in, we would all have to acknowledge... <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you should stick to the notes a little more closely. Uh, that was unplanned. Sorry. I hope it's not like the one you're in. Let me say that. Regrettably, sometimes it is. Um, of course, we know that that's a dysfunctional relationship, that that relationship isn't flourishing. Uh, we know that conversation is the lifeblood of a relationship. Uh, swapping perspectives, telling stories, uh, sharing what's on our heart. Uh, these are my hopes, my aspirations, my sorrows. As we share our inner life with one another, uh, you know, that relationship flourishes. And what is true in human relationships is equally true in our relationship with the Lord. Uh, where there is a vibrant walk with the Lord and fellowship with Him, there will be a, a vibrant life of prayer, because that's what prayer is, talking with God. Uh, one indicator of where we are in our relationship with Jesus is the status of our prayer life. If we're not praying, or praying very little, little or half-heartedly, uh, mumbling a word or two in the morning, or before a meal, or before we go to bed, there's something amiss in our relationship. And one of the things we will look at in this passage is how we can grow in our prayer life. Uh, there's much that we can get from this passage. Uh, we will look specifically on why we, at why we should pray, how we should pray, and what we should pray for. Uh, why, how, what. But before we get to prayer, which as I say will be at the focal point of the message today, uh, I need to finish equipping you in the armor of God. If you recall last week, I started equipping you. I've, gave, I've given you four of six pieces. Uh, you were inadequately prepared, but this week, no more excuses. You'll get the full armor. Uh, we saw four last week. We looked at the, the belt of truth, the shield of faith, and so on. Uh, today, we will look at the final two pieces of the armor that Paul gives us here. But let's remember the context. In chapters four and five of the letter, the Apostle Paul has been teaching us how we ought to walk as Christians in everyday life. We ought to put aside unrighteous anger. Uh, we ought to put aside sexual impurity. We ought to uh, love our spouses. Uh, as husbands love your wives, as Christ loves the church, wives submit to your husbands. Uh, we are called to raise godly children. We are called to be diligent in our work and so on. He spells out our responsibilities to King Jesus. But then what he does here is he helps us to see those responsibilities within the framework of spiritual warfare. He says, if you're just looking at these duties you have before Jesus Christ, and you are not seeing them in the context of spiritual warfare, you're not seeing them the way that you should see them. There is more to the Christian life than meets the eye. There are invisible enemies, the powers of darkness, uh, demonic powers that oppose the people of God every step of the way. And so we, need, we should not be surprised that things are frequently difficult, that it's hard to grow, that it's hard to be faithful to Jesus Christ. If we are to be faithful to Jesus, we need to understand this dynamic, that we're engaged in spiritual warfare, and what we need to do is prepare ourselves for battle. And the way we do it uh, is by putting on the armor of God. And again, last week we looked at four elements of this armor, and today we'll look at the final two. And the, fi the fifth element is the helmet of salvation. 
the helmet of salvation. A helmet, of course, is something you use to protect your head. And uh, what Paul is saying here is recognizing this fundamental, monumental reality that you are saved is a crucial aspect of our warfare. Think about that. If you're a believer, whatever else is true of you, you are saved. You were once dead in your sins and trespasses, but God, through his son Jesus, has acted powerfully to bring you from death to life, from darkness to light. You now belong to him as a son and daughter, and he equips you through his Holy Spirit to walk in a way that honors him. That means that intimidating and fierce as the powers of darkness are, they're nothing compared to the risen Lord. Through the strength of the Holy Spirit, we are able to stand fast against the schemes and the assaults of the evil one and bear much fruit for the glory of God. We are saved. We belong to God. And that should give us a firmness and a strength in this spiritual warfare with the powers of darkness. In addition, we should recognize not only that we are saved in the present, although the letter to the Ephesians emphasizes that aspect of salvation. We are today, if we are trusting in Jesus, saved. That is, reconciled to God, forgiven. But there's a future component of salvation. Jesus will come back, make all things new, uh, and then our salvation will reach its climax and fullness. And we recognize that that is our destiny. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, that God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's our future. That's our destiny to conquer. And as we recognize that inappropriate that reality, we will be able to contend against the schemes of the devil. Final piece of the armor, the sword of the Spirit. This is the only offensive weapon in the armament. There are other defensive pieces, but this is the only offensive piece. Uh, You seek to pierce your enemy, after all, with the sword. That's what it does. Uh, It it can function defensively, too, but mainly that you attack with it. Uh, Paul speaks, speaks here of the sword of the Spirit, the sword from the Spirit, the sword that the Spirit himself sharpens and uses. The sword is effective because it's from the Spirit. He's the one who gives it its cutting edge. Now, what is that sword? The Word of God, which is the Word of God. In this context, Word of God refers primarily to the gospel. It's how, the, how Paul has used that language in Ephesians to this point and uses it in other languages. Uh, it includes Scripture, which never separate the gospel from Scripture, because, of course, Scripture itself bears witness to the good news or the saving message about Jesus Christ. Uh, but in this context, it is especially that saving message about Jesus that is described as the sword of the Spirit. It's an amazing statement when you think about it. What does God use to pierce the souls of men and women so that they turn from rebellion to Jesus Christ? This message about what the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has accomplished on their behalf. As we speak that message clearly and firmly, that is God's instrument for reconciling sinners to himself. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Think about that statement. Where has God, as R.C. Sproul put it, put the power? Where's the power? The power is in the message. As we witness to what God has done through his son, how the eternal son of God became flesh, lived the life that we should have lived, a life of perfect submission to the father, as he died on the cross, bearing the judgment that we deserve. So he rises again, vindicated by the father, having conquered death and sin and judgment. 
Uh, all those who trust in that Jesus and receive that message are reconciled to God. That message is God's instrument for bringing people from darkness to light. It's what the Holy Spirit uses to pierce the soul. What that means is we should have confidence in the gospel. The success of uh, the gospel, the good news that we share with others, is not finally how smart we are in having all the answers. It's the message itself. That should embolden us. We, we know we don't have all the answers. We know that it can be very difficult uh, to talk about Jesus. Uh, it can be hard. We're not comfortable doing it. We recognize all of that. But if, if you know that the gospel is the Holy Spirit's sword for piercing the soul and bringing dead men to life, it should give you confidence. It's not about your presentation. It's not about you. It's not your sword. It's the Spirit's sword. So use it. Confident in Him, not in yourself. And, and if you are weak, so much the better. Because what does God love to do? Display his power in our weakness. So be confident in the message that we are given, the good news about Jesus. That is the instrument the Spirit uses to save people. Share Jesus with others. And then we get to prayer. Uh, Paul leaves behind this military metaphor, uh, the armor of God, that he gives us the different items of this armor. He leaves that behind in verse 18. And he speaks to us of prayer, but notice that he doesn't start a new sentence in verse 18, a new command, something separate. Uh, verse 18 connects with what went before, and uh, Paul is telling us what we need in addition to the armor of God to withstand Satan's assaults, to withstand temptation, discouragement. And that extra something is prayer, praying at all times in the Spirit. As I said earlier, we will look specifically at why we should pray, how we should pray, and what we should pray for. But one qualification is in order before we do that. Let me point out that we can never reduce prayer to a technique. If you do X, Y, and Z, then God will give you whatever. Uh, prayer is not a way of controlling God, of manipulating Him, of getting what you want. Prayer is talking to God, and it presupposes a relationship with a person. So we want to be clear, this is not a technique. If you do this, uh, you pray X amount and Y amount of grace will come into your life. That's, that's not a biblical view. That's a pagan, idolatrous view. We can't control God, uh, but he in his grace invites us to come through Jesus and pray to him and fellowship with him. Okay, why should we pray? Well, in the first instance, we should pray because God commands it. It's a pretty good reason. If there was no other reason, that would be a sufficient reason to pray. In this context, though, Paul gives us an additional reason. We should pray because it's one of the ways that God uses to protect us from spiritual assault. That's the context here. Satan, the powers of darkness, are assailing believer, believers, tempting them, discouraging them, uh, filling them with guilt. And uh, the, the weapon that we have, although, as I said, the military metaphor has been set aside, one of the means we use to stand firm is prayer. If you are a prayerless believer, you are susceptible to satanic assault, to all manner of discouragement. Uh, it won't be easy to stand firm without prayer. We see this vividly illustrated on the night when Jesus was betrayed. Jesus knows that his apostles are going to be tested. And he warns them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And uh, the apostles, what do they do? Watch and pray? Well, perhaps they tried to pray, but found themselves dozing off. 
somewhat encouraging, not a unique experience. Uh, not that it's justified, of course, but they slept. They slept, and Jesus warned them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And uh, they fell asleep. And we saw what happened with Peter. He ended up denying his Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't watch and pray, and therefore was susceptible to temptation. If we want to resist evil, then we will give ourselves to vigilant prayer. Perhaps one of the reasons we don't make more progress against our, our habitual sins, the lust, the outbursts of anger, the discouragement, the self-pity, is because we don't pray as we ought. If we had a more serious, more vigorous life of prayer, we might be able to more firmly stand up against temptation. Why do we pray? To resist Satan and his onslaught. Second, how do we pray? Paul tells us that we ought to be praying at all times in the Spirit. What does it mean to pray at all times? Well, at one level, I think it means uh, he, what he's describing is the kind of spontaneous prayer that you offer to God throughout the day. If you're walking with the Lord and there's a near accident that doesn't happen, you take a moment and say, Lord, thank you that you protected me. Uh, thank you for watching over me. As you drive to work, you sometimes think of your community group members and the needs that they have, and so you pray to the Lord, help them uh, to take initiative with their children, help them not to be discouraged. Uh, if you see someone at work, they're not a believer, you remember them, and so you, you offer a quick prayer, Lord, have mercy on them, I know they're going through a lot, uh, grant them salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. At one level, praying at all times is just this constant conversation with the Lord. Uh, we have been saved from our sins, reconciled to God, so that we might have a relationship with God. We walk with the Lord. And this prayer throughout the day is just a matter of fellowshipping with our Lord. And we offer, as Paul says, all manner of prayer, all prayer and supplication. Sometimes we give thanks and praise. Sometimes when we're conscious of having done something wrong, we confess our sins and ask for forgiveness. Sometimes we intercede for others. But the Christian life is one of relationship with the Father. And so... The, to pray at all times is just this constant conversation with the Lord as we go about all, our day. But it also includes times of focused prayer, where we do nothing except pray to God. The Apostle Paul seems to have had times like this in his own life. Uh, Ephesians 1.16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. Notice that language of my prayers and he uses it in other letters as well, it suggests times of prayer. Perhaps morning and evening or whatever it was for Paul, but there were times set aside specifically to do nothing but pray. Jesus did the same thing, Luke 5, 16. Um, but he would go away to places where he could be alone for prayer. Both Paul and Jesus took time to focus on God, bring their request before the Lord. And, of course, this requires planning. If it doesn't get on the calendar, if we don't block out time for this kind of prayer, it simply won't happen. The first step, if you're not currently doing this, the first step for you would be to take 15, 20 minutes each day, maybe morning, maybe evening, where you say, this is my time to be alone with the Lord and to pour out my heart to Him in prayer. Again, it, do it morning, evening, whenever. If you're currently doing that, if you've currently got some time in the morning that you carve out, just you and the Lord, try adding another slot at the end of the day, or perhaps midday. Uh, as a Protestant, I'm not too thrilled about monks, uh, but one, one of the practices in, in the monastery was the, 
hours of prayer, right? You'd have prayer time in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. There's something wise in that practice, setting aside time to focus on the Lord, uh, avoid distraction. So if you're currently doing it, try, perhaps, if your schedule permits it, and ideally it would, uh, to include more time for prayer. Now, some of you have had the experiences I've had of you sit down, you set, you set aside 15 minutes to pray. I'm just going to pray. And you go through one or two minutes and, and you're out of things to pray for. The well has run dry. What do I do now? Do I keep repeating this? What, what else should I say? Uh, and that, that can be discouraging. So how do we get over that hump? Well, one important solution, uh, make sure that you pray Scripture. Uh, pray the Psalms. Pray through the Lord's Prayer. Pray Paul's prayers, or any part of Scripture, really. Use it as a launching pad to bring petitions before the Lord. Uh, what Christians have done historically is they've prayed the Lord's Prayer. And they would use those petitions in the prayer, like a little bit of loose string, you'd pull on it and more would come. They start, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name means reverence be your name. May you be glorified everywhere. Just start thinking about that a little bit. Like, where is God not glorified in my life? Lord, forgive me for that, help me grow in that area. Uh, where is God not glorified in the world? Ooh, okay, Lord, I pray that you would act in such a way that your name would be honored here and here. But as you draw on Scripture and you reflect on the implications of its teaching, you find that there's plenty to give thanks for, uh, plenty to intercede on behalf of others, as we'll see in a moment, uh, plenty to confess. Uh, scripture itself enables us to, pl- to pray with great... Uh, r- with copious material, if I can put it that way, with great riches, with, with lots of petitions and thanksgiving. So first thing we want to note here about prayer, how should we pray? We should pray at all times. Spontaneous prayers, more formal times dedicated to prayer. And we should pray in the Spirit. The idea is that the Holy Spirit energizes and empowers our prayer life. There's a supernatural aspect to prayer. There's more going on in prayer than meets the eye. When you pray, God the Holy Spirit propels you forward as it were. Uh, I suspect if you've walked with Jesus Christ any length of time, you know what, I, what Paul is talking about here. There are moments when your prayer catches fire, doesn't it? There are moments where you're interceding for someone, and all of a sudden you find yourself, there's a power, there's a passion, there's an urgency about this person that is unexpected. You're like weighed down for them. Perhaps you're, you're weeping for them, and it comes out of nowhere. It's like a ship that's sitting on the water, and all of a sudden there's a gust of wind that propels it forward. And in those moments, we, get, we glimpse something of the supernatural character of prayer. We aren't alone in prayer. God the Holy Spirit is propelling us. In prayer, uh, we, every person of the Godhead is involved. We pray to the Father, through the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't approach God on our own merits. We approach through Jesus. And we approach in the power that comes from the Spirit. Uh, D.A. Carson, in his book, Praying with Paul, helpful little book uh, giving an overview of what Paul teaches about prayer, you know, brings together different aspects of his thought from different letters. Uh, Anyway, he draws on the Puritans, this would be 16th, uh, 17th century Protestants in England. Uh, He draws on the Puritans, and uh, he says that one concrete way to pray in the spirit to cultivate this warmth in our prayer is to quote pray until we pray pray until we pray i think you guys know what that means experientially Uh, here's how carson describes it again he's drawing on the puritans here 
What they, the Puritans, meant is that Christians should pray long enough and honestly enough at a single session to get past the feeling of formalism and unreality. We are especially prone to such feelings when we pray for only a few minutes, rushing to be done with a mere duty. If we pray until we pray, eventually we come to delight in God's presence, to rest in His love, to cherish His will. Even in dark and agonized praying, we somehow know we are doing business with God. In a word, pray till you break through. That's hard to do, right? You've got your schedule, you've got, I've got this much time for prayer, and then I need to be doing other things. But one way to cultivate this prayer in the Spirit, according to Carson, is to pray until we pray. Pray until it's no longer cold and heartless, but you start to gain momentum like a stone falling down a hill. So pray until you pray, and as I've already suggested, pray according to the priorities of Scripture. Notice in this context the close connection between the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, and praying, which, is ha which happens through the enabling of the Spirit. Notice the close connection between prayer and the Word. Both come from and are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, when we are praying according to Scripture, which the Holy Spirit inspired, we are praying in the Spirit. We are praying as He would have us to pray. Now, one of the challenges in prayer often is we don't know what to pray for. Our priorities aren't exactly the Bible's priorities. So when we pray for people, we'll often pray especially for their earthly prosperity. Lord, give them health and wealth and you know, grant their marriage to flourish and may their vacation be a good one. Uh, there's nothing wrong with these petitions. These are fine. These are things that are good. They come from the Lord. Uh, but these are also not the most fundamental priorities of Scripture, are they? God doesn't mainly want you to be comfortable. He wants you to be like Jesus. And often those two things are incompatible. Would you rather be holy or comfortable? If you're praying according to the priorities of Scripture, you're going to be, you're going to be saying, yes, Lord, bless them with health and, and in all of these uh, significant ways in this life, but above all, make them like Jesus Christ. Even if that sometimes means pain and difficulty. One way to make sure we're praying in the Spirit is to attach our request to something in Scripture, something specific. Um, to attach our petitions on behalf of ourselves and others to a specific priority in the Bible. So, for example, let's, you're, let's say you're praying for the marriage of so-and-so in the church. Lord, help them to forgive each other. There's a lot of resentment that's been built up over years. Help them to forgive each other. Help them, Lord, to live at peace with each other. That's a good prayer. But you can take a step beyond that by noting what we learned in Ephesians chapter 5. What's God's will for marriage? that husbands and wives would relate in such a way that the drama of the gospel would be displayed to the, to the world around us. Marriage is intended to be a lived-out picture of the gospel, of Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to Him. So we can pray this way, Lord, help them to forgive each other, give them peace, but there's something more than domestic happiness, isn't there? There's the glory of God. Lord, do that so that the honor of Jesus Christ would be lifted up, so that your son would be exalted, so that the gospel would be on display in this marriage. Notice, I'm still praying for God to heal the marriage, but I'm connecting it to the priority of the glory of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Act, Lord Jesus, for your namesake, as well as their good. Act for the cause of the gospel, that it might advance in the world as this marriage is healed. Praying in the scripture includes grounding rather your petitions in the priorities of Scripture. 
third thing then, how do we pray? So we pray at all times in the Spirit. And uh, Paul goes on to say, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. To that end refers to what he said before. So pray all the time in the Spirit. And to obtain that goal, keep alert with all perseverance. Be vigilant. You're not just going to find yourself suddenly praying as you ought to pray. It's something that you have to wake up for. You're cultivating a rich inner life and prayer life is something that has to be a priority, something that we vigilantly seek. And that alertness includes spiritual alertness, recognizing that we're engaged in spiritual warfare, recognizing that the coming of Jesus Christ is at hand, the end of all things is at hand. We are spiritually awake, not slumbering, and that spiritual preparedness enables us to pray as we ought. Be vigilant in your prayers. Be spiritually alert. That's how we ought to pray. Finally, what should we pray for? What should we pray for? Paul says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. One crucial ingredient in a healthy prayer life is that you're not just praying for yourself. There's a place for that. Your needs, spiritual and otherwise. But one sign of a healthy prayer life is you are consistently interceding for your brothers and sisters. We need to recall that God has so arranged things that none of us can be effective for Him in our own strength. We are able to exercise our gifts and grow in obedience as other believers pray for us and we pray for them. We're part of a spiritual organism. We belong to each other. We need each other. And we can make progress only as we help each other uh, grow. And one essential way for helping each other is intercessory prayer, where we stand before the Lord and pray for our brothers and sisters fervently. It's not just about you. What should we pray for then? What are, what are some petitions that we should regularly be bringing up before the Lord on behalf of our brothers and sisters? Uh, let me give you five. That way no one can say this week they don't know what to pray for. We talked about the problem of the dry well. It won't be dry if you take these five petitions to heart. Uh, number one, and we see this in, uh, in Ephesians. These petitions come out of Ephesians, except for one, which comes out of Thessalonians. Ephesians 1, 16 and 17, here's what Paul says. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This is a prayer for spiritual illumination. This is a prayer that we would not just know the truth with our intellects, but that the truth would get a hold of our souls and our hearts. That we would have a sense upon the heart of the reality of the things that we profess with our tongues and know with our intellects. It's one thing to know that honey is sweet. It's another thing to put it on your tongue and taste its sweetness. And Paul is praying that they would taste the sweetness of the gospel in their souls. Pray that God would cause us to have spiritual eyes, inner eyes, the eyes of our heart, to see the truths that we confess and profess as believers. In this case, the hope that we have. Number two, pray that others would know the love of God and know the love that Jesus Christ has for them. We speak often about Jesus loving us, the Father loving us, and we forget what a radical thing that is and what a life-changing thing it is when we experience it. When God's fatherly love wraps itself around us and 
we are reminded of his concern for us, of his goodness towards us, that melts our hearts. It causes us to grow in likeness to Jesus. It causes us to put away petty resentments, to be larger hearted. The love of God transforms us. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, this is what Paul prays for the Ephesians, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Pray that your brother and sister would not just know intellectually, this is really a subset of the first one, would not just know intellectually that God loves them, but would experience that reality and thereby be transformed. Here's how Carson puts it. It is wonderful to revel in the love of God. Truly to experience that love, to live in the warmth of its glow, invests all of life with new meaning and purpose. The brotherhood of the saints takes on new depth. Fellowship becomes precious. Forgiving others becomes almost natural because we ourselves have been forgiven so much. Others may despise us, but that makes little difference if God loves us. Our speech, our thoughts, our actions, our reactions, our relationships, our goals, our values, all are transformed if only we live in the self-conscious enjoyment of the love of Christ. Our testimony is no longer dry and merely correct. It is living and vital as well. We are, in short, growing up spiritually. It's in that ever-deepening awareness of the love of God that we begin to grow up and mature. It's what we need. It's what others need. Pray for that. Look at verse 23 for the third petition. This is Paul's prayer wish for the Ephesians, and he says, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. The, the three Christian virtues are faith, hope, and love. And we should be asking the Father to produce those in us, but also in others. Oh, Father, teach them to love. Teach them not to put themselves first, but to put others first. And to know the joy of not serving themselves, but serving others. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Let them know that blessing. Lord, deepen their faith. Let them be grounded in the truth of God. Let them be firm in the face of Satan's fiery arrows. Lord, give them strong hope. Let them live with the values of eternity, knowing that this world will soon pass and Christ will return. One thing to pray for others is that God would fill them with faith, hope, and love. Fourth petition, I included it because I'm intrigued by it. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.11, Paul says, To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. What Paul seems to be assuming here is that God's people, as they walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, will occasionally get these ideas, these initiatives for advancing the kingdom. I think if you've walked with the Lord for a period of time, you know what I'm talking about. You'll just get like a good idea for how God's kingdom could advance. I should probably start a Bible study in this neighborhood. I should talk to that person. I should call that person and, and encourage them. Uh, now, what often happens is that we have these great ideas about how we can contribute to the advance of the kingdom, and, and they don't materialize. We want to do it, it would be a good idea, and then for one reason or another, it doesn't happen. We remember a few years later, maybe the pang of guilt, oh, I should have done that, didn't do that. What Paul seems to be praying here is that those good initiatives, prompted by the Spirit in our faith, he, he's praying that God would help the Thessalonians to bring those initiatives to fruition. That if there's some good initiative that God has put on their heart, 
that he would strengthen them to bring it to pass. So one thing to pray for your brothers and sisters, as the Holy Spirit puts on their heart some good endeavor, that God would help them to bring it to pass, to actualize it. Finally, and fifth, a final thing to pray for others is that God would make them effective in the work of advancing the kingdom, make them effective in their engagement with others. That's what Paul prays. Uh, it's fascinating to me, isn't it, that after all these years of ministry, Paul's in prison in Rome in chains. He's a veteran at preaching the gospel all over the Roman Empire. He has preached boldly. He has taken beatings. He's been adrift at sea. He is a seasoned preacher of the gospel. But he's not beyond needing the prayer of God's people. So what does he do again and again in his letters? He reaches out to the churches he's writing to, and he says, pray for me. Paul needed prayer, so do you. Pray for me. Pray that words would be given to me in opening my mouth boldly. This doesn't mean he doesn't know what to say. He knows the gospel. He's shown us in Ephesians. Uh, he, he seems to be asking for the right words with which to, to say it. And he prays that he asked them to pray that he would be able to preach the gospel boldly, that I may declare it boldly uh, as I ought to speak. It's intimidating to stand before the emperor of the Roman Empire magistrates, important people. Uh, Paul recognizes his weakness. And he says, I need your prayers. If I'm going to be courageous and free in my presentation of the gospel, it's because you're interceding for me. I can't do it alone. The apostle Paul can be fruitful in his apostolic endeavors only as other lowly Christians, if I can put it that way, pray for him. It's a remarkable truth. And what it teaches us to do is, is to pray for others to be fruitful in their kingdom work, the initiatives they take to make Jesus known to others. So when you hear that someone's going to have lunch with, the, uh, un, with an unbelieving colleague for the sake of sharing Jesus, pray for that. Pray for the parents of CBC as they read scripture with their kids that God would make that fruitful. Uh, if you hear about a block party that someone's throwing to get to know their non-Christian neighbors, pray that God would use that. God uses prayers like these to cause these initiatives for the kingdom to flourish. Pray for the children's ministry, the men's and women's ministry. And don't forget the preaching ministry of the church, right? One basic responsibility is to hold up your pastors uh, who bring to you the word of God in one context after another, uh, bring them before the Lord and intercede on their behalf. It would be consoling to know that that's happening. Uh, one, uh, I, I, would, uh, I would ask you to make an agreement here. Let, let's, uh, let's make a deal here. Uh, let's say that the criticism of the ministry will be only in proportion to the intensity of the intercession. So uh, you can take issue with the ministry of the church, the leadership of the elders, to the degree that you are praying for the church's leadership. When with a broken heart, with tears in your eyes, you intercede on behalf of your pastors with God, then there is room for, uh, you know, for pointing things out, for bringing a word in season. But uh, criticize in proportion to your prayers for your pastors. Those who are called by God to bring the word of God to the people of God need the prayers of the people of God to be effective in that ministry. So one basic challenge, don't forget, uh, we, we need prayer, that your elders need prayer. Pray for them that they might be effective in the responsibilities God has given to them. So as we take a step back from this passage, end of Ephesians, uh, it's important not simply to hear this and go, yeah, I probably need to work on my prayer a little bit. It's important today to resolve to take one step forward. What will that one step forward be? 
Which of those five petitions can you start praying tomorrow? Maybe you could do one petition a day. I don't know. But how can you take what the word of the Lord has said to you today and take a step forward in your faithfulness uh, in your walk with Jesus Christ? And trust that as you do that, you'll experience more and more of the joy of praying. That initial formalism and coldness will give way to delight and satisfaction in prayer as you seek the Lord. So let's pray at all times in the Spirit, being alert to this end. Amen.